Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Jonathan Anton, a law professor at Case Western Reserve University, where I coordinate the law school's Frank J. Battisti Memorial Lecture Series. I'm pleased to introduce today's speaker, who delivered this year's Battisti Lecture yesterday. Uh, our speaker is the John F. Kimberling Professor of Law at the Maurer School of Law and distinguished university professor at Indiana University at Bloomington, Charles Gardner Jay. Earlier this week, P President Donald J. Trump continued his ongoing battle with the judicial system by publicly criticizing two liberal Supreme Court justices. These instances followed his previous questioning of the legitimacy of judges who disagreed with him and giving agencies the freedom to ignore court rulings. These actions call into question a core tenet of our democracy, judicial independence, the ability of judges and courts to perform their duties free of influence or control by other branches of government or shifting popular opinion. While widely accepted, the architecture of judicial independence has never been fully explained or understood. How did the architecture of judicial independence norms begin? And when did they start to erode? Why is independence essential to the role of the judiciary in American government? And if it is a threat, if it is under threat, how can it be rescued and defended? Today's speaker is an expert on judicial conduct, ethics, and procedure. Professor Jay began his career clerking for the Honorable Thomas A. Clark of the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit and served as counsel to the United States House of Representatives Committee on the Judiciary. He joined the faculty at Indiana University in 1999 after teaching at some other institutions, including Case Western Reserve, has served as the law school's associate dean for research, and is the recipient of three faculty fellowships, three trustees teaching awards, and the Leon Wallace Teaching Award. An accomplished author, his scholarship has been published in over 70 books, articles, reports, and other publications, including his most recent book, Courting Peril, The Political Transformation of the American Judiciary. Professor Jay received his BA in political science and his Juris Doctor degree from the University of Wisconsin. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, Please join me in welcoming Professor Charles Gardner Jay. Thanks, John, for that introduction. I, even I didn't invite me after that one. Um, it's a privilege to be here. The title of my talk is The Twilight of Judicial Independence. It's, it's a topic I want to tackle in three parts. 
First, I'm going to talk a little bit about the structure of judicial independence. Second, I'll discuss the history of judicial independence and the problems that have emerged in the latter stages of that history, problems that have put the future of independence in what I'd characterize as a kind of twilight that can precede either darkness or dawn. And then third, I'll finish up by turning to how we might address those problems uh, to the end of improving the prospect of a brighter future for, for, the, for the, an, an independent judiciary. Now, I conceptualize the structure of judicial independence in four tiers. At the top is really an ancient rule of law paradigm that began with the ancient Greeks, died with the fall of Rome, was resurrected during the Enlightenment, uh, and in its most basic form, that paradigm proceeds from the premise that we have fundamental rights that are better uh, protected by self-imposed laws than by the will of autocrats. With respect to the role of the judiciary, uh, it contemplates that courts will impartially uphold the law on a case-by-case -case basis. To that end, judges, the theory goes, must be afforded independence from external interference with their impartial judgment so that they will uphold the law uncorrupted by extra-legal influences. The paradigm acknowledges the need to hold independent and judges accountable to the law, uh, but in a limited way. Uh, in a way largely limited to the strictures of a judge's conscience and the appellate process, except when corruption or criminal conduct are involved. To this day, uh, the judiciary's role in the rule of law paradigm and the centrality of judicial independence to that role are repeated as a virtual mantra. A couple of examples. Justice, Justice Stephen Breyer has written, judicial independence revolves around the theme of how to ensure that judges decide according to law rather than according to their whims or the will of the political branches of government. Similarly, Chief Justice Roberts testified at his confirmation proceedings that judges and justices are servants of the law, not the other way around. Judges are like umpires. Umpires don't make the rules, they apply them. Uh, in other words, judges keep, like umpires, keep their personal views aside, follow the law. In the second tier, below this rule of law paradigm, is Article III of the U.S. Constitution, which really sought to implement the rule of law paradigm in a rudimentary way. It established a separate judicial branch armed with the exclusive authority to exercise the judicial power, and it protected judges from external interference with their impartial judgment uh, by giving them tenure and, uh, and salary protections. But the text left gaps. Nothing would seem to stop Congress from retaliating against judges for making unpopular rulings by impeaching them, by cutting their budgets, by disestablishing their courts, uh, by changing court size to alter their decision-making majority or withholding salary increases? And what if a president undermined court power and autonomy by flat-out defying court orders or using his bully pulpit to delegitimize the courts altogether? To fill these gaps, we get down to the third tier, a third tier of informal constitutional conventions that has emerged over time and evolved as a kind of political branch precedent to guide Congress and the President in their relationship with the courts in a manner consistent with the independent judiciary as conceived in that rule of law paradigm and as implemented by Article III. These political branch conventions have become entrenched over time, filling gaps and resolving uncertainties in the text of Article III. Taken together, these conventions have spawned what I'd characterize as a fourth tier, a general custom of judicial independence that the political branches have, with exceptions, respected. That segues to a discussion of history, which I define into, into, into four parts. Judicial independence 1.0, a period of establishment. Judicial independence 2.0, the period of evolution. Judicial independence 3.0, a period of erosion, followed by judicial independence 4.0, uh, which is a period of, of, of collapse. 
Beginning with Judicial Independence 1.0 as a period of establishment, the new English Americans aspired to establish a separate, and judicial, uh, a separate and independent judiciary in principle. Before the revolution, they were unhappy that colonial judges were dependent on the crown, and they said so in the Declaration of Independence. After the revolution, they were unhappy with that state judges were dependent on state legislatures. And so at the Constitutional Convention, there was really a high watermark in sort of consensus for judicial independence, and they provided judges with tenure and salary protections. These aspirations, however, were compromised by inattention. The founders were so focused on regulating the relationship between Congress and the president that they relegated the third branch of government to what one historian has described as, quote, little more than an honorable mention. The problem of inattention was exacerbated by inexperience. The framers were familiar with threats to judicial tenure and salaries, but they had little practical experience with other political branch encroachments on the judiciary as a separate branch of government. That would change in 1801 with the, the first transition of political power in American history. The outgoing Federalists passed the so-called Midnight Judges Act, which packed the courts with 16 new judgeships that the incoming Jeffersonian Republicans promptly unpacked before embarking on a campaign to remove other Federalist judges by impeachment. For Senator William Giles, a cheerleader for the triumphant Jeffersonian Republicans, the lesson of this episode was that the theory of a separate and independent judiciary is not, quote, critically correct, although it is obvious in the, that the framers of our Constitution proceeded on that theory in its formation, close quote. For Giles, the Constitution authorized Congress to have its way with the judiciary and remove Federalist judges, quote, indiscriminately, close quote. The separate and independent judiciary uh, that the framers had aspired to establish in theory was on the brink of obliteration in practice. Ironically, the precedent Giles and his cohort set wound up becoming precedent to avoid rather than follow. Over the course of the next 150 years during judicial independence 2.0, the period of evolution, a series of conventions would emerge, evolve, and entrench to guide Congress and the president. These conventions opera operated as a kind of precedent against initiatives that undermined the independent judiciary envisioned by the prevailing paradigm, which the framers had aspired to protect in their constitution. These conventions would be tested cyclically, following major transitions of political power, when new regimes would seek to undermine holdover judges of the old regime, and traditionalists would rise up and defend the courts from attack with recourse to these established conventions. So, in 1804, after removing Federalist Judge John Pickering by impeachment, a task made easier by the fact that he was not just a strident Federalist, but a strident, alcoholic, insane Federalist, <laughs> Congress would never again remove a judge for high-handed decision-making despite more than 30 attempts in the intervening centuries. With respect to court packing and unpacking, after repeal of the Midnight Judges Act, Congress would never again remove judges by disestablishing their judgeships. Congress would adjust the size of the Supreme Court several times over the years, but never for openly partisan purposes, a convention that thwarted FDR and his attempts to pack the Supreme Court during the New Deal. Similarly, Congress has never exploited its control of the judiciary's budget or salary increases to punish judges or hold them hostage, contrary to what many state legislatures have done with respect to their state judicial systems. And after the Midnight Judges Act, Congress never packed the courts with a mass infusion of judgeships for partisan gain. Finally, although the con judicial confirmation process has always been partisan, the Senate and President adopted procedural conventions 
like the filibuster, the blue slip, senatorial courtesy, and ABA review of candidate qualifications that encouraged consultation, consensus, and compromise in judicial selection. These conventions produced a judicial workforce that, with exceptions, enjoyed broad-based support, a workforce that, in the public's mind, could be trusted with its independence. Presidents have followed the constitutional conventions, too. With the exception of President Lincoln, who broke from tradition amid the exigencies of the Civil War, no president has openly defied a direct Supreme Court order, a convention that one scholar has described as perhaps the most important convention of all. Sitting presidents have often criticized judicial rulings, but there is a convention against doing so by attacking the court's legitimacy or motives. Lincoln once implied that the Supreme Court had usurped power from the people, but he sandwiched that accusation between statements emphasizing his support for a counter-majoritarian court, in other words, a court committed to doing what the law required and not what was popular, um, and respect for the court's rulings. The lone exception is FDR, whose campaign against the Supreme Court included accusations that it had, quote, improperly set itself up as a third house of Congress, close quote, for which reason, quote, we must take action to save the Constitution from the court and the court from itself. Now, the resilience of customary independence embodied in all of these conventions is attributable to the rule of law paradigm, which guided the formation of the Constitution and the conventions that emerged to fill gaps in the constitutional text consistent with that paradigm. Beginning in the 1920s, however, several developments began to challenge an assumption core to this rule of law paradigm, namely that independent judges can be trusted to impartially uphold the law. So began Judicial Independence 3.0, a period of erosion. The legal realism movement of the 1920s argued that empirical study was essential to understanding the decisions judges made because those decisions could not be explained with reference to operative law alone. In the 1940s, political scientists began to develop what would become known as the attitudinal model of judicial decision making, which posited that the choices Supreme Court justices made are influenced less by law than by their ideological preferences. The federal judicial appointments process was evolving on a parallel track. As the role of nominee ideology in a prospective judge's future decision making became an increasing focus of, Senate, of Supreme Court confirmation proceedings throughout the 20th century, culminating in the 1987 rejection of Robert Bork on ideological grounds alone. Nakedly partisan disputes over ideology then percolated down to the circuit and district court confirmation level where long-standing procedural conventions were repurposed to sandbag nominations of judges deemed activists or extremists. In a series of developments spanning more than a generation, the media became apostles for the gospel of an ideological judiciary. The traditional media reported on Supreme Court decisions with reference to the ideological voting blocks of judges in the majority and dissent. Cable television news networks emerged to attack or defend the ideological tilt of Supreme Court decisions. And citizen journalists took to the internet and social media to attack judicial decisions they deemed ideologically unacceptable. Survey data shows that the public shares the views animating Judicial Independence 3.0. Significant majorities believe that while judges say they are following the law, they often act on their ideological or personal feelings and policy preferences. Public support for the Supreme Court seemingly remains stable and strong, but there are signs that that support is increasingly contingent. 
that liberal and conservative support for the Supreme Court swings with the court's latest rulings and with whichever appointing president is in power. These developments show an emerging skepticism of a principal core to the rule of law paradigm, that independent judges hold extra-legal influences at bay and impartially uphold the law. Over time, the public has simply ceased to believe judges when they say that they follow the law and nothing but. If judges impose their policy preferences, the thought goes, why should they be independent from political controls when other policymakers are not? Now, in the past four years, erosion has yielded to partial collapse in what I'm denominating Judicial Independence 4.0, with a neo-populist wave that has swept more than 40 nations around the globe, including the United States. There are several causes contributing to this neo-populist movement. One I would characterize as a kind of democracy fatigue. The percentage of Americans who trust the federal government all or most of the time has declined from 77% at the beginning of the Johnson administration to 17% today, which may help to explain gradual declines in support for the Supreme Court over time. A second contributing cause is the ascendance of anti-elitism. Support for populist, man-of-the-people leaders is driven by disdain and distrust for professionals, for the wealthy, for intellectuals, and for experts including scientists, journalists, and career government officials. The implications of these anti-elitist sentiments for highly educated, life-tenured uh, professionals who sit aloft on benches in fancy robes judging the masses seems pretty clear. A third contributing cause is political polarization. Our, politi our political leaders have become more po polarized ideologically, and average Americans have become much more polarized affectively, meaning in their hatred for members of the opposing political party. Neopopulist leaders have exploited these divisions by pitting themselves and their cohort against their opponents whom they demonize. And the data show that these highly in these highly polarized times, the public is especially receptive to court-curbing measures to control the other side's judges. Voter distrust of experts and disaffection for government as usual correlate with the desire for a stronger, more autocratic leader who can wrest control from elites and reclaim government in the people's name. Once elected, neo-populist leaders across the world have consolidated power by stifling dissent within their own political parties, discrediting the media, and of particular importance here, weakening the judiciary. President Trump has ridden a wave of populist power into uh, the presidency. Aided by a supportive Senate, he has challenged the judiciary's autonomy in the teeth of long-standing conventions to the contrary, and some of those conventions have begun to yield. Procedural conventions in the judicial confirmation process have collapsed. In 2016, Senate Republicans denied Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland a hearing that he would customarily receive. They repudiated the Blue Slip Convention. They ended the filibuster option in Supreme Court confirmation proceedings six years after Senate Democrats did the same for lower court confirmations. Finally, President Trump eliminated the American Bar Association's pre-nomination role in vetting judicial candidates, and in the years since, an unprecedented number of judges that the ABA rated unqualified have been nominated and confirmed. Conventions against court packing are likewise under fire. In 2017, Federalist Society Chairman Stephen Calabrese co-authored a memo to Congress urging Congress to double the size of the federal appellate judiciary for the explicit purpose of packing the circuit courts with conservative judges to neutralize the impact of Obama-era appointments. 
Democrat leaders, this is a game the whole family can play, in turn have responded in kind, proposing to pack the U.S. Supreme Court with additional justices if and when the Democrats return to power. For his part, the President has repudiated the convention against delegitimizing rhetoric. He has responded to court rulings with which he disagreed by dismissing those rulings as political and the court, their courts that issued those rulings as disgraceful. He has disparaged the judges involved as Obama judges and so-called judges across an away, array of tweets and other public statements uh, culminating in an extraordinary rebuke from the Chief Justice of the United States. Finally, the Convention Against Defiance of Court Orders was placed in doubt when the press widely reported that the President was thinking about adding a citizenship question to the 2020 Census by executive order in defiance of a recent Supreme Court decision. That threat did not materialize, but it would be naive to think that the prospect of defiance does not remain a live concern. Looking toward the future, the collapse of independence conventions in Judicial Independence 4.0 was facilitated by a protracted erosion of support for judicial independence in the rule of law paradigm under Judicial Independence 3.0, that period of erosion, when a series of developments rendered the premise that independent judges set extra legal influences aside and impartially uphold the law increasingly implausible, if not hypocritical. One response is to shrug and welcome a judiciary that is more responsive to partisan and majoritarian pressures. That response makes sense if judicial independence is to blame for its own undoing. But in my view, the problem does not lie with judicial independence itself, but with how judicial independence has been conceptualized unrealistically in the rule of law paradigm. The solution, then, is not to jettison judicial independence, but to retool the paradigm itself. This isn't you know, a massive paradigm shift that I'm going to bring out with fanfare. This is a tweak, but let me talk about it. The paradigm reboot I propose begins from the premise that judges are embedded in a well-established legal culture that takes law really seriously, beginning in law school and continuing in practice. Hence the name for this thing, the legal culture paradigm. Second, likewise beginning in law school and continuing in practice, future judges are exposed to per pervasive legal indeterminacy. Law students learn to exploit these uncertainties in the law by arguing both sides of difficult legal questions, divorced from their own personal preferences, to the end of making themselves more effective advocates in the, you know, in, in, uh, for their clients in an adversarial system of justice. Third, future judges, again, beginning as law students, resolve these indeterminate legal questions with reference to competing policy arguments that aid them in deciding which of two comparably plausible arguments is right, is best. When the judges decide indeterminate legal questions with reference to these competing arguments, the argument that they find most persuasive can be informed by their background, their education, their life experience, including their race and gender, their common sense, and their policy perspective, aided by a strategic sense for the political context in which their, those cases arose. To deny the existence of extra-legal influences in such situations as the rule of law paradigm does is, at this point, I think foolish and unnecessary because this is not judging gone rogue. This is judging done right. Judicial independence remains critical in this kind of legal culture paradigm. 
In easy cases, when the law is clear, judicial independence enables judges to uphold and apply the law as they have been acculturated to do throughout their legal careers without fear or favor clouding their judgment. And this is the vast majority of the time. Not every case presents a complicated issue of law, and judges simply follow precedent, follow the law, and move on. But in hard cases, when the law is indeterminate, and when judges need to choose between these close alternatives, there is no denying that the choices judges make can affect legal policy. But the policy judges make is case-driven. The outcome turns on the application of facts and law with which the judge is familiar by virtue of the adversarial process, which supplies judges with the specifics needed to make an informed decision. Judicial independence thus positions judges to give us her best assessment of what the applicable facts and law require, unpolluted by external threats or manipulations. An assessment that the judge is uniquely situated and fully acculturated to make. Insofar as this is policymaking, it is fully informed, fact-driven policymaking that is better suited to achieve just results on a case-by-case -case basis than if the judge was subject to the control of actors who are unfamiliar with the law, unfamiliar with the facts, and are concerned only with achieving a desired outcome. The virtue of a legal culture paradigm is that it defends an independent judiciary in a way that is more honest and plausible. The downside, though, is that by acknowledging the role that extra-legal influences like ideology can play in judicial decision-making, the legal culture paradigm needs to concede the risk of what I call gratuitous policymaking, in which judges can abuse their independence by disregarding the law that they are acculturated to follow, knowingly or not, and imposing their own policy predilections. Accordingly, the legal culture paradigm in proposing envisions a more robust role for judicial accountability to, uh, to deter this sort of kind of gratuitous policymaking. Now, without disputing that role that Congress or the President play in promoting judicial accountability, the additional accountability that the legal culture paradigm envisions can be supplied in large part by the judiciary and by intrajudicial mechanisms that already exist and that pose no meaningful threat uh, to judicial independence. Let me give you a short list. One, appellate review of bias-induced errors just the appellate review process. Second, mandamus actions designed to thwart judicial usurpations of power. Third, disqualification processes that force the withdrawal of judges whose impartiality is in doubt. Fourth, procedural rules that structure and limit problematic exercise of judicial discretion. Fifth, the code of conduct for U.S. judges, which regulates judicial partiality and partisan political conduct. Sixth, the, code of the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, which allows for uh, Congress to authorize the, the circuit judicial councils to discipline judges for behavior prejudicial to the effective administration of the courts. Seventh, the oath of office in which judges swear to act impartially and uphold the Constitution. And that seems like weak sauce, but in reality, judges take that oath of office very, very seriously. And finally, eighth, informal norms among judges who seek mutual respect on collegial courts you know, and that these norms discourage openly partisan judging as contrary to their rule of law mission. By better promoting the importance of these mechanisms to judicial accountability and reforming them, to better serve their purpose, the judiciary itself can go a long way toward preserving its autonomy in a gradual transition to a legal culture paradigm. Now, implementing the proposed paradigm will help to meet the challenge presented by eroding support for the rule of law paradigm, but it is inadequate to the task of overcoming the threat to the constitutional order posed by this period of a collapse by Judicial Independence 4.0. 
That is because the legal culture paradigm depends for its success on preserving customary independence by respecting constitutional conventions that are being trashed in the service of dueling campaigns to promote or thwart the neo-populist wave that is sweeping the United States and much of the world in Judicial Independence 4.0. It is unrealistic to hope that a modest reboot of the prevailing paradigm can, by itself, quiet the polarized partisan political fury firing Judicial Independence 4.0 because the judiciary and its independence have become little more than pawns subject to sacrifice in a chess game for the future of American democracy. Throughout American history, there have been cycles of anti-court anger following major transitions of political power. The first two cycles of the 20th century were related. The conservative Supreme Court substantive due process jurisprudence during what lawyers referred to as the Lochner era thwarted legislative, the legislative agenda of angry progressives as they ascended to power in the early 20th century, just as that same very jurisprudence impeded and infuriated New Dealers a generation later. The end of this cycle, of the New Deal cycle, was punctuated in part by the Supreme Court's footnote, and it's the most famous footnote in all of Supreme Court history, footnote four in the Caroline Products case, where the court signaled its intention to reserve heightened due process scrutiny for cases in which, in which legislation and other state action impinged upon the rights of discrete and insular minorities. Now here's the reason that's important. The net effect of this pivot was to withdraw the court from protecting the property rights of businesses by second-guessing the wisdom of socioeconomic legislation enacted by largely progressive legislatures and shifting the court's focus to protecting the civil rights and liberties of political minorities against infringements by majoritarian and often more conservative state interests. As a consequence of this shift, the next three cycles of anti-court sentiment featured angry conservatives taking aim at more liberal federal courts, beginning with attacks on the Warren Court by state and federal officials in the 1960s, then the House Republican campaign against liberal judicial activism following their ascension to power in 1995, and now President Trump's ongoing effort to discredit the political decision-making of so-called Obama judges. In these conservative campaigns against liberal judges, Republicans have made recreating the courts as conservative champions of judicial restraint a centerpiece of their agenda. Democrats, in contrast, have adopted a more passive and defensive approach. They came to regard federal courts as allies in the cause of protecting the rights that liberals held dear, and instead of campaigning aggressively to establish a liberal court, they joined moderates in defending the judiciary's independence from cyclical conservative backlash. The net effect has been a manifestation of what some scholars have called asymmetric constitutional hardball in which conservatives have tested the limits of these independence conventions I've discussed more aggressively than their liberal counterparts. But judicial independence 4.0 may be a game changer. Progressives are awakening to the realization that their conservative adversaries are poised to win a generations-long battle for ideological control of the Supreme Court. Sensing a major jurisprudential rules regime change, progressives now shown signs of returning to their roots and launching an offensive in the spirit of their forebearers from the progressive and New Deal eras, most notably reflected in proposals to pack the Supreme Court. For those of us who regard constitutional conventions as essential to the orderly operation of government and who see merit in customary independence and the conventions that animate it, we must brace for a future that will get worse before it gets better. Pokes to the eye of established conventions by conservative partisans will elicit reciprocal pokes by progressive partisans in lieu of unheeded warnings not to poke at all. 
This eye-for-an-eye stratagem is very much in the spirit of high-stakes civil litigation, where the parties push the limits of applicable rules in scorched-earth campaigns to exhaust and intimidate their opponents in pursuit of tactical advantage. In this environment, calls for compromise and detente will almost certainly go unheeded, and so I anticipate that scorched-earth tactics will dominate in the short term. Ultimately, however, hardball litigation is exhausting. Running a government without guiding conventions is chaotic. And therein lies hope. The more insufferable, unrestrained hardball gets, the more attractive the alternative of settlement becomes. A key to enabling settlement is to bring the parties together in a quieter and less formal setting to promote candor and discourage posturing for the benefit of external audiences. Beginning in the 1970s, the Brookings Institution hosted a series of conferences in Williamsburg, Virginia, and elsewhere. These conferences brought representatives from all three branches of government together to discuss court-related issues for the purpose of improving interbranch communication and promoting mutual understanding of challenges confronting the judiciary. And so I look forward to a time when we can convene a, a series of tri-branch summits in the spirit of the Williamsburg conferences once the adversaries are willing and receptive to meet. These summits could address such topics as the role of an independent and accountable judiciary in American government, the state of constitutional conventions that have served to protect an independent judiciary from encroachment, and the need for procedural conventions in the appointment process to promote a stable system of selection and an independent, accountable judiciary. It is premature to convene these summits until the populist wave has crested and the disputants are prepared to meet and listen. There is, however, room for optimism that the current appeal of the biblical edict, an eye for an eye, will ultimately yield to Mahatma Gandhi's warning that an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Thank you. Don't go anywhere. Um, my goodness. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive at the City Club, and today we're, um, we're participating in a legal clinic uh, with Professor Charles Gardner-Jay, <laughs> uh, the John F. Kimberling Professor of Law at the Moore School of Law and Distinguished University Professor at Indiana University at Bloomington, which will be hosting the Bloomington Summits in 2030, perhaps. Uh, we're about to begin the Q&A with the audience, and we welcome questions from all of you, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream and our radio broadcast on WCPN. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our team will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are content and programming coordinator, Bliss Davis, and City Club intern, Remy Orasanya. May we have our first question, please? Are there any similarities between Hitler's rise to power in a democracy that we're seeing in the United States today? Well, I think now you're outside of my, 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 my sphere. I think the notion of consolidating power and weakening the judiciary, there are historical analogs. I am really reluctant to be alarmist about these things, and so I'm not going to go there with you, but there are analogs, and there, there are some fairly important stories about the way that the judiciary was weakened as a prelude to, Nick, to, to, to Hitler's ascension to power. I mean, it is, it's a formula that really is very effective and, and dominates, you know, as I suggested, uh, what the Tony Blair Institute says are over 40 nations around the world. So, so there are the parallels. Uh, I, I tend to push back, not push back, but resist the temptation to, 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 go, all, to go full Hitler. Thank you, for pre Professor. I, I think all the lawyers in the audience should apply for a CLE credit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm so sorry. No, no. No, it's fascinating. Uh, but here's my question. Um, if I understand your proposition about right. the uh, legal cultural 
paradigm. Right. Uh, I would like you to apply it to a real-world example, and I'm going to give you one, a tough one, I think. Sure. Um, if I understand your paradigm, you're saying that uh, judges, um, federal judges, independent federal judges, should take into account the culture, legal cultural paradigm. No, no, I mean, no. But, and, and so, um, with respect to, for instance, a, uh, well, I'm, Give me I'll, an example, sure. The example being uh, the, the very troubling, difficult, uh, uh, issue that tears this country apart of, of abortion that we're going to see in the Supreme Court very soon. The cul culturally, uh, poll after poll says the majority are for the right to choose. Um, but yet, we can see what's happening in the states uh, here in Ohio, for instance. So would, could you apply your paradigm to that issue? Sure. The, the, the legal culture paradigm simply means that judges are part of a culture that takes law really seriously. And I think the good example in abortion cases are, and I've had conversations with many trial judges, is a good place to start, who are basically, you know, who, who, who sort of smile about the fact that constituents ask them, what's your view on abortion? And their reaction is to say, it's the law of the land regardless of my view. And so I think from the standpoint of the average judge, uh, they will say, look, my views I set to one side and, uh, and I uphold the law of abortion as long as the law of the land. Where it gets tricky uh, is when you get to the Supreme Court level, to when you get to a point where it's not illegitimate to reverse yourself. And at that point, you end up, I think my point is, the judges are uh, you know, in a situation where you can say, a conservative judge may look at the abortion issue and say, I am interested in following the law, and I don't see uh, that kind of freedom of choice anywhere embedded in the Bill of Rights or the 14th Amendment. I just don't see it. I am applying the law as I understand it, and I don't see it. Whereas other judges are saying, no, that's part of the penumbra of our privacy rights. Moreover, as since 1973, it has been the law of the land. I'm respectful of, uh, I'm respectful of, of precedent. And so you have two, I think, arguments, neither of which are utterly illegitimate, for why, I mean, both of them are acculturated to follow the law. At the margins, both of them are influenced by their policy predilections. There's no doubt that the ones who are saying, I don't see it in the Constitution, are more likely uh, to be ones who are hostile to the prospect of a right to, to abortion, whereas the ones who see, um, who are respectful, deeply respectful of the president at the U.S. Supreme Court level may think differently. My point is that you don't need uh, to conclude that the whole bunch of them are ideological zealots. You've given me the hardest question in the entire United States. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I think you can make the case for saying that at this level, some of them are looking beyond following the law and are engaged in active policy making. And at the Supreme Court level, where we don't have the same checks, that becomes more of a concern. And I don't want to be otherworldly in my impression. But I think on average, you know, the, it, it, it bears emphasis there are 25,000 judicial officers in the United States, and if we spend all our time talking about the nine on the U.S. Supreme Court, we get a skewed vi view of the administration of justice in the United States, and the other 24,993, I think, do take law very seriously in the way I'm describing. Most of the time, the law is clear. They follow the law. When the law isn't clear, they do their best to come up with what the law requires, but there's no question that their background, education, experience, and in some cases, things like race and gender can, can enter into the, into the equation. Um, I, <laughs> my professor impulses keep me from... Thank you, professor. Sure. While it may be true that students in their formative years can explore judicial independence, how can there be a believable claim that judges who are supported by a political party 
can completely explore judicial independence. I think that's an excellent point, and I think my, my last book was on, on judicial elections. Um, I think that, that the, uh, the way you need to look at it, one, one judge once told me, I, as, and as an elected judge, I, you know, I have a 10-year term, I'm, elect, I'm independent nine years out of that 10. Um, uh, what's interesting is that it gets really complicated really quickly. I think your point is well taken. Uh, and let me, by exhibit A in support of your point, uh, that if, there's a, a, an important Pennsylvania study which showed that if a judge is running for office and sentences a criminal offender three months before the election, they get, on average, three months longer sentence than if they're sentenced three months after the election. I mean, and that's not good. That's not good. Um, uh, and, and so I think you can make the case for saying that judicial elections pose a threat. This is not to suggest that appointive systems necessarily do any better. In a lot of the appointive systems, uh, we do see, for example, in merit selection systems where judges are subject to retention election. In Pennsylvania, that was, that was the study. It was a study of judges voting differently in advance of retention elections. So merit selection systems don't affect things. And the worst of all are true appointive systems where judges are subject to reappointment. In those New England states where that happens, judges are far less likely to overturn legislation when their future depends on the acquiescence of the legislature or the governor. Um, and so each system presents unique problems. I am not disputing. My, you know, my first article on this subject was why judicial elections stink. So I'm not exactly uh, a, a big fan. But I have become, reached the point of recognizing that it's, you know, it's a very complicated issue and no one system protects independence as fully as we might suppose. Hi, Longshore Billingsley Legal Aid Society of Hi. Cleveland. I guess my question is, that I keep going back to in my head is if we're looking at, for example, the president, right? If we're looking at him as the, and not complying with court orders as how dare he not comply with court orders, where are the teeth in the court orders? Where is the enforcement of the court orders and why aren't we looking at changing the system wherein someone is able to not listen to or not abide by a court order. That's because, for example, in state courts, if you don't comply with a court order, you can have a show cause motion, and you can be held in contempt, and you can be placed in jail. There are all kinds of things that you can do at the state level, so why aren't those same mechanisms in place well, at the federal Follow level? through with what you're, think, what you're saying, though. If you, suppose you get a show cause order to hold them in contempt, okay? If you, the, the, the show cause order, you know, contempt down. What if the, uh, you know, what, the judge then does what? Orders him to jail. And what if the governor says, no, order me. Get my own people to put me in jail. You're not going to get it. Because in other, in other words, that, that the judiciary is dependent on a culture in which people respect judicial rulings. The, 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 the contempt order means something. That, it, that, that they don't have the muscle. They don't have the power of the sword. They're dependent on the executive branch for that. And in a situation in which they hold an executive in contempt, we are dependent on the executive acquiescing, abiding by this 200-year culture. And you know, it, was, it was punctuated by a fake episode uh, in which an order was issued against the state of Georgia during the Andrew Jackson administration. And Jackson reportedly said, the chief justice has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Um, and the idea that he never said that, uh, but it sounded cool at the time, uh, and it sold newspaper. But the point, I think, is that, that you are 100% right that we have these mechanisms. If the president defies an order, the district court can hold him in contempt. But, you know, what happens if that doesn't work? 
In other words, if the president doesn't call out you know, the marshal service or whomever to enforce it. I mean, that's really the challenge. So that what we've, what we've done for 200 years is just trusted the system to work. I mean, the turn of phrase I use is the Constitution works because we will it to work. And that's part of the reason I'm as worried as I am, is that when we have 200 years of, the, and, you know, of presidents abiding by orders except when Lincoln you know, essentially overrode the writ of habeas corpus, which the Constitution authorized him to do in wartime anyway, we have a, a, a you know, 100% compliance. I mean, with, you know, some foot dragging and lollygagging, but I think your point is, is an excellent one. I'm just saying that the reason you're so comfortable with what happens at the state system is that everyone knows what the rules are and they kind of play by them. If you violate the rules, you get hit with contempt and the, 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 and the executive won't go that far. He'll abide by the order. Sorry, sorry to cut you no short. No problem. Really. Sir, I have thoroughly enjoyed your lecture. I don't know as much about the Constitution as I would like. My question also is very basic. I'd like to have a copy of your speech. Oh, sure. So that I can yeah. look closely at what you've spoken to us about yeah, I today. I talk fast, yeah. So. <laughs> That would be, in itself, the beginning to a thorough education I'll, I'll, of the I'll, Constitution. I'll talk with organizers about the possibility of making it available. And that's Thank all you. I have to ask you. <laughs> Thank you, President. Hi, so my question is sort of about the framework of uh -huh. how the Article III uh, brings up the Supreme Court. And so my question is, a lot of the powers that make the Supreme Court as powerful as it is, I think also sort of make it dangerous in the way that the Supreme Court can make an immediate decision on the Constitution, whereas um, through the direct election of senators and uh, um, representatives, the people can't do that as quickly as maybe as, as a court can. What is your opinion on that? And should that be changed? Excuse me, should that be changed? Do we have another way of making a system where we can make decisions on the Constitution in not such a speedy way. I know it's not speedy, but... Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, I, what you're pointing to in part is a, you know, a super important point, which is that courts are basically able to do certain things and they're crappy at doing other things. Uh, they're, they're good at, at doing cases and controversies in straight up simple ways, but when they, you start basically saying, we have a failure of our political system, so why don't you manage this? Why don't you manage this prison system? Why don't you manage the problem of the opioid epidemic? Why don't you manage, uh, you know, the problem of homeless in California? Because there isn't the political will of what you're describing as the political branches uh, to deal. And so it gets thrown onto the courts oftentimes without their you know, interest or desire. And so part of it is a failure of political will. The other, though, that I think you were hinting at is that courts don't have these checks. They're autocratic in some fashion. But bear in mind that they're autocratic in part because we let them be autocratic. That if the president wanted to, he could disregard orders. Congress could zero budget the judiciary. They could, we could kill the courts if we were so inclined. And it's only because we've got a political culture that says we don't do that here in the United States that we are tolerating it. But the court is mindful of that. And so I think Chief Justice Roberts is an excellent example of a judge who may have ideological leanings to the right, but in a handful of critical opinions, he's thought strategically about the court's role in American government and backed off. I think in part because he recognizes 
the, the, the same concern you have, which is if we go too far, we lose our, our legitimacy. If we lose our legitimacy, out comes the military, out goes our budget, and we're done for. Um, and so part of it, I think, is the court minding its own business and needing to mind its own business. And part of it is the political branches need to step up and do their job and not expect the courts to do it when they don't have the political will to do it. So uh, my question actually conveniently follows off of that pretty well. With how uh, politically divisive things have gotten lately, uh, with both parties somewhat expecting the Supreme Court to become an ally of theirs, uh, if we start attacking the courts in general and defunding them or stacking them, how can we as citizens stand up to this in a more meaningful way than just you know writing to our senators, calling them? How can we really work to keep the courts funded and independent? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, here I am doing this because this is what I do, uh, because this is what I can do. I, I, I feel your frustration, and I don't have a good answer because I think that what you're what you're pointing to is right now this populist wave is really that. And while we can focus our attention on President Trump as kind of a, a populist leader of the right, there is no denying that Bernie Sanders is in many ways a populist leader of the left in terms of his, his favoring a very strong, somewhat muscular, uh, uh, muscular uh, uh, executive branch that is going to be less solicitous of, of, uh, of the judiciary. And so uh, I, you know, I wish I had a good answer. I think part of it is I am working to try to prop up and reestablish uh, this culture that we've had for a very, very long time. Without it, the most we can do is basically, I mean, my, my daughter has want, wants me to write a book uh, which is called uh, Be Effing Reasonable. Um, uh, in other words, that, that really all it comes down to is, oh, for God's sake, we don't have to be mealy-mouthed compromisers, but we do have to be reasonable. We have to have reasons for why we do what we do, and we have to look up the facts underlying the reasons we have. And so we're now at a point where, in this post-truth era, where we aren't doing that. We're, not, we're, we're relying on facts we receive in our own little hermetically sealed bubble, and we're arguing amongst each other, but we all, you know, I don't know about you, but I lost all of my politically you know, opposed Facebook friends. We now have our all little, you know, the liberals have theirs and the conservatives have theirs. And in that environment, meet, you're saying, how can we meet in the middle? How can we avoid these extremes? And I think that the... Uh, it, my only hope is, based on the populist progressive era where we saw something very similar at the turn of the 20th century, essentially, we exhausted ourselves with it. We discovered over time that this was getting us nowhere, and we backed off because we had similar threats. But I think it's a, a process of time, and I wish I could offer you more, more meaningful. I'm just filibustering my way through an excellent question. <laughs> oh. All of your discussion today both your history and your, your proposed paradigm is in the language that those of us in the legal community understand. How do we package this message for more general population? That's a terrific question, and I do think, I really think, one of, one of, the, one of the real th risks of, of or one of the unreal, unrealities of my, my thing is, of my, my proposal is, you know, that if we say, come on, judges, be honest and acknowledge that at the margins when these questions are tough, your background, education, ideology matter. Imagine a Supreme Court nominee saying that in front of the Senate. Oh, law isn't everything to me. 
I mean, that, that would be, you know, basically let's, let's haul him out on a stretcher, right? So it's got to begin at the grassroots level. It's got to be, for example, at, I, I, uh, I am the, uh, uh, I oversee our Outreach for Legal Literacy program at, at, at Indiana Law School where, where we uh, bring law students and they, they basically teach a class once a week for the entire year on you know, basic civics in, grade, in all grade schools throughout Bloomington. Uh, it culminates in them coming in for a, uh, which is really quite wonderful, a, an oral argument where they're, they're a mock trial at the law school with professors judging these little fifth graders. Um, uh, but it's a way to basically start, and, and, but, but the message of why judges need to be impartial and independent is part of that curriculum. Similarly, judges in talking with, with jurors when they're impaneled talk about the role of the judiciary with average folk. Uh, grade school classes visit judges, judgeship, judges visit grade school classes, judges talk uh, to civic organizations. The opportunity to talk about the art of judging, to my way of thinking, is worth talking about. In other words, that judging isn't math. Judging is, you exercise judgment and discretion, and how do you exercise that judgment and discretion? How do you and sort of sentence a criminal offender? What goes through your mind? What, what, what factors enter in? Because I think ultimately, the public's going to have an enormous respect for that, and over time, uh, they're going to become increasingly unsympathetic to the notion of, well, they follow the law and nothing but, and they damn well better. Well, yeah, but, but there's an art to judging, and we can learn about it more over time. Uh, I really enjoyed your speech, but I think we're taking not enough credit to the Constitution where we had a system of checks and balances and the various areas in, in doing that. And I noticed you didn't talk about it, and especially with the question from legal aid. We just went through an impeachment process. If the President of the United States would not abide by an order, at least we had the impeachment process involving that. Isn't that important? It's important. Do you think it would work? Do you think the Senate, do you think this Senate would, would, you know, would, would, would impeach and remove uh, President Trump for openly defying a court order? I think it would depend upon whether it was a court order they liked or they didn't like, right? I, I, I'm not suggesting that the ultimate, the ultimate of removal, but it's the, the political threat I'm sure that we all knew that President Trump wouldn't be impeached by the Senate, but he was worried about it from a political standpoint. Oh, I think so, but, but and, not... And I think that's a very important function. It, it's a fair point. I think that one of, the, one of the problems of a populist movement is that those checks and balances become compromised when, both the, judici when the judiciary is weakened and when the Senate itself is compromised. Uh, in, when, the, when, the, when, when, when there is a unitary executive with a compromised Senate. And by compromised, I simply mean that, that they are unprepared. I mean, they're not prepared to hear witnesses in an impeachment trial. I think that's, to me, it was signaling a, a resistance to using that check in a meaningful way. Your point, though, I don't want to lose your point altogether. These checks exist, right? The president can be impeached by a, a check. The president can then, if impeached, can call out the military, uh, you know, which would bring the government to its knees. Uh, the, the government could, the, the Congress could defund the president. I mean, there are lots of ways, I think your point is, there are lots of ways to check. It's just, it's unclear to me in this populist era how, how effective those checks have become. But, I, but your overriding point is still a good one, that we, we do have these institutional checks. Um, uh, one of them is the Supreme Court gets to sort of exercise judicial review, but we assume that if they exercise judicial review and impose their will, 
that the president will abide by it, and we really haven't had a situation to deal with. Can, we, we could impeach him. I think, that's, I think that's right. He could then call out the military and you know, refuse to leave office, and his, and his supporters might well support that. That's the kind of future I, that gives me night frights. Thank you, sir. Okay, really well done. Okay, thank you. Today at the City Club of Cleveland, we've been hearing from Professor Charles Gardner Jay, the John F. Kimberling Professor of Law at the Morris School of Law and Distinguished University Professor at Indiana University at Bloomington. We've been hearing about judicial independence, the state of it, and solutions for the challenges it is facing. Our forum today is presented in collaboration with Case Western Reserve University School of Law, who brought our speaker into town to deliver their annual Frank J. Battisti lecture. We thank Case Western Reserve University School of Law and, in particular, Professor Jonathan Enton for their partnership. We also want to thank the community partner from, for today's forum, the Legal Aid Society of Greater Cleveland. We appreciate your support and partnership as well. We welcome guests at tables hosted by Breakthrough School's alumni and Dave Nash. We're happy to have all of you here, and that brings us to the end of our program today. Thank you, Professor Jay. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland. Special thanks to our members who make our work possible. To find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support City Club, visit us online at cityclub.org. Have a great weekend. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.